Again, glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 31. Not the most uplifting uh, chapter that you're going to read. But we'll just do our best to press through. So uh, here's some background. You'll see a timeline up there and a map that kind of put everything in perspective. Saul and David no longer are interacting with, with each other, but both of their lives are being impacted and revolving around an impending battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. And so I just, I picked days. That's not what they called days back then. So we just said Monday. That's the one we'll decide. David's down in that red star. He's sent home by the Philistine king. He's gotten himself into some trouble because of a deception. He's been lying to the Philistine king. And the Philistine king conscripts him to fight with the Philistines against the Israelites. God graciously delivers him from having to do that. So David sent back from Aphek, that red star, down to Ziklag, where he's been living with his 600 troops and their families for the past 16 months. The Philistines have gathered up there in Shunem, that green star. Tuesday passes Wednesday. So David gets home. He gets home and, he, and his, his uh, city is burned. All of their livestock has been taken, and then the families of these 600 men, their wives and their children, have all been kidnapped. And so David and those 600 men pursue the Amalekites. So they're doing that on Wednesday. That same time, Saul is up there in Mount Gilboa, that yellow star, and he sees the Philistine army, and he gets scared. He inquires of the Lord. God ignores him. God does not answer Saul. And so he goes to that blue star indoor to see a witch who will raise Samuel from the dead, his spirit from the dead, so Saul can get some information. So he goes to this witch. She's successful. Samuel rises from the dead on this Wednesday night. And he says to Saul, tomorrow, so on Thursday, you're going to die, your sons are going to die, and your army is going to lose. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. On Thursday, David finishes his battle with the Amalekites. He started fighting them on Wednesday night. He fights them all the way through to Thursday night. He defeats them. He Wipes them out. There's only 400 Amalekites who escape. He gets back everything that was taken. All of the livestock, all of the people. So he and his men are returning victoriously from this fight. They're going back to Ziklag. And on Thursday, we'll see what uh, Saul's response is uh, in this battle. So chapter 31, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all of his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his arms in. When the people of Jabesh Gilead heard what, what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. 
Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. You're glad you came this morning, aren't you? It's, it's good. So, not tons of detail, but everything dead Samuel said what happened, happens. So, Saul and his three oldest sons, it's not all of his sons, Saul and his three oldest sons are killed. The Israelite army is routed. The people who are living in these Israelite towns who see the fighting and realize they're losing and that Saul is dead, they all leave their towns. And so the Philistines occupy them. So they don't just defeat the army. They don't just kill Saul and then the heir apparent. They also extend their territory. You can see Beth Shan is that purple star. They've moved pretty far into Israelite territory. The battle is where that red star is. The yellow star is Gilboa. That's where the Israelites are retreating towards. They lose. And Saul's body and the body of his sons is are tacked up on the wall in Beth Shan and that where that purple star is. So they again they've taken territory. They haven't just defeated the army. So Saul and his guys are retreating. Saul is hit with an arrow from an archer and he knows he's gonna die. So he says to his armor bearer, probably a young kid, someone a teenager, he says, You've got to kill me. Because if these guys get me, they're going to torture me, and then they're going to kill me. That's what Philistines did, particularly to those high-value people. And Saul don't want that to happen. And his armor bearer, I would say understandably, says, I, I can't do that. Again, he's a teenager. And to think about doing something like that, he says he can't. And so Saul kills himself. And then his armor bearer kills himself. And again, that kind of culminates this, this route of the Israelites by the Philistines. The next day, the Philistines come out to strip the body. They cut off Saul's head. They take him to this place, Beth Shan. Again, it's a statement of this is, this is what we've done. This is how far we've moved into your territory. They tack their bodies up on a wall as a trophy and as a statement of victory. Then you've got some guys from Jabesh Gilead. That's that, per, that green star 15 miles away. They take a, a very dangerous trek to Beth Shan in order to recover the bodies. Way back in chapter 11, the guys in that town, Jabesh Gilead, they were being sieged. They were besieged by an enemy, and Saul comes and rescues them. So I think maybe this is some form of payback. And so they, again, huge risk at night, cross a river, enemy territory, to recover these bodies, to bring them back. They burn the flesh off them. That's gross. But that's what they do. So the, I think but so the Philistines don't have any desire to come back and try to get them again, to mutilate them, use them as trophies. They bury the bones, which was Hebrew custom, and then they fast uh, for seven days as a sign of grief and a sign of respect for Saul and for his uh, for his family. So a couple of things. This is not super uplifting either, but from this chapter, something that does bounce around in the church is is the, the whole idea of Saul, Saul kills himself. So what does that mean? What does that mean for someone who kills themselves? And unfortunately, that does hit people. Uh, that will hit some of us at some point. For many, many of us, it won't. But for some of us, at some point in our life, this is going to hit close to home. So is it a sin to kill yourself? Yes, suicide is a sin. Don't murder. Suicide is murdering yourself. There's this misconception that we have, particularly where we live, that this body is ours. It's not. If you step back, like you didn't, you didn't make this. You didn't form this. It was formed. It was shaped. It was knitted together, and you had nothing to do with it. You didn't decide to be born. None of you did. None of us made a decision and said, "I'm going to be born today." We don't. That's not how it works. Life is a gift, and our body is a gift. 
And we don't get to do whatever we want with either of those. And we particularly don't get to decide when life is over. It's given to us as a gift and we receive it every day that we have. And at some point, God decides. But we don't get to decide when life is over. We don't get to decide what we do with our bodies because our bodies are a gift. Is, if suicide is a sin, is it an unforgivable sin? This is something that floats around sometimes in the church. No, it's not. There's one unforgivable sin. Jesus said every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven except one, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What exactly is that? It's a bit cryptic, but it, in general, it's attributing activity of the Holy Spirit to someone other than the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' day, the religious leader said about Jesus when he's driving out demons, that's not God working, that's the devil working. They're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. This work the Holy Spirit is doing through Jesus, they're saying, no, that's not really the Holy Spirit. That's not God. That's the devil. In our day, we don't necessarily attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil, but we may attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to emotion or to superstition. or it's, It's a persistent resistance to the work of God. It's a hardening of our hearts so that we can't respond to God's invitation. So... You don't need to worry whether you fall. If you're responsive to God, then you are not. Whatever reason God has said, I won't forgive that. It's an unforgivable sin because the people who are in that posture aren't seeking forgiveness in the first place. There's no, there's no humility in that heart. So if suicide is a sin, yes. Is it unforgivable? No. So if a Christian commits suicide, will, are they still saved? Will they still go to heaven? Absolutely. We're saved by grace through faith. Our behavior doesn't save us, so our behavior can't unsave us, if that's not a word. But it can't can't do that. Your actions are not what brought you into a right relationship with Jesus, and so your actions are not going to destroy that. Think about salvation relationally, not as a destination, but as a relationship. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, knowing Jesus and knowing the Father who sent him. A moment of desperation, a moment of despair does not negate a desire to be in relationship with Jesus. It doesn't negate the fact that Jesus' death covers every sin, including suicide. Well, what if people don't have time? This is what I hear sometimes. Well, people don't have time to confess that. That's, That's not the deal. It's not this technical thing where God says, oh, you didn't confess all your sins, so you're out. That's not how it works. I might go get hit by a bus on my way out, and I didn't confess all my sins either. Before that. that, that's not the way it works. All of your sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did 2000 years ago. There, there's not this list where you have to make sure you cover each one verbally before those sins are forgiven. That's not how things work with the Lord. So if, if someone is trusting in Jesus in a moment of desperation or despair, they take their own life. That doesn't negate the fact that that person has been trusting in Jesus. Don't hear that as permission for sure uh, to do anything. But recognize if a Christian commits suicide, they're still a Christian. What about euthanasia? This is the case where this is a mercy killing. He says to his armor bearer, kill me. They're going to torture me. I can't tell you what the Philistines would do. It's awful. I can't say it over the microphone what they would do to people. And Saul is saying, I don't want that to happen to me. So please, in compassion and mercy, kill me. And his armor bearer won't do it. Would it have been a sin if the armor bearer had stabbed him? Absolutely. Euthanasia is still murder. It may be done with from a place of compassion or mercy, but it is taking someone else's life. And we don't have the we don't have the authority to do that. It's suicide. You're just asking somebody else to do it for you because you can't maybe 
physically do it on your body is a gift. You don't get to do what you want with them. Now this, I don't want to lose you on this, but pulling the plug, that idea, somebody's on a ventilator that's keeping them alive, that's not euthanasia, that's not a sin. There's a big difference between introducing death to a situation and removing something that's preventing death from a situation. So let's say Saul is bleeding and his armor bearer is pressing and that's what's keeping him alive as he's pressing on this wound. If the armor bearer takes his hand off, that's not killing him. That's not, that's not euthanasia. That's not assisted suicide. That's not a sin. What he's doing at that point is he's no longer preventing death. That's it. He's just removing treatment, which is not a sin. That's not the same thing as pulling a sword and stabbing him in the heart. You can hear the difference between those two things. There's a big difference between unplugging a machine that is breathing for you and injecting someone with a solution that stops their heart from beating. You hear the difference between those two things, right? So withdrawing treatment, that's not a sin. In introducing something that causes death is a sin. So if, there, if we don't live in a technological society, if you would have died, then that's okay that you're not standing in the way. I've told my wife, like, if don't, no, no plug, like, no machines. Pull it as soon as you can and get married on your way out. Like, just move on. Move on. You don't have to do that. Some of you may at some point, unfortunately, have to. It's your decision. You're not obligated before the Lord to do that. That's a decision you can make before God and with your family. Or you can just let it, the disease do what it does, barring a miracle. Like, we're not required to prevent in that way. Does that make sense for yourself? So you, you can put your dog to sleep. Like, you can. That's okay. You can't put your grandmother to sleep. That's not okay. They're not the same. One is created in the image of God and one is not. They're not the same. So it's okay with your pets. Totally. That's not a sin. It is not okay with people because they're created in the image of God. And we don't have this. We don't have the standing to say your life can end. And we don't even have the standing to say my life can end. Does that make sense? All right. Chapter two. It actually goes downhill, if you can imagine. So (laughs) second Samuel we will skip over. Uh, chapter 1 of Second Samuel. So now David is about to hear about Saul's death. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He said, Who are you? And Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, where are you from? I'm the son of a foreigner. 
an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called down one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. So this is the next Monday. There's a timeline up there just to help you contextually see where everything is. So David's gotten back to Ziklag. He waits. There's two days, a Saturday and Sunday. And then on the next Monday, this slave, this runaway slave gets to Ziklag. David is a long way away from the battlefront. He has no idea what's happening. This is the first news. And this guy comes to bring him a report. I think he's lying. You can choose to believe his story or the one we read in First Samuel 31, but you have, to, you have to pick. They're not the same. I think this guy's lying. I think uh, he was a slave of an Israelite family. I think as the Israelites are retreating and being killed by the Philistines, it's chaos, and he escapes. I think in his escape, he sees Saul's dead body, and I think he takes the crown and the armband off of him and goes to David in order to hopefully get a reward. Remember, Saul's body was left overnight. It wasn't until the next day that the Philistines came and stripped it and cut off his head. So there, there was time there where this guy could have come upon Saul and could have taken those, uh, the, the crown and the army, in which he does have. And so David believes him. He's got a very credible story. It sound, um, we know what really happened. It sounds really close to what did in fact happen. And he has Saul's crown and he has this armband that Saul would have worn. So that adds credibility to his story. He just doesn't know David. He thinks David is going to reward him because he's killed Saul, who was his enemy in his mind, in this Amalekite's mind. This guy who's been hunting David, the reason David's living in a foreign country, he's thinking David's going to reward me for this. He doesn't realize that for David, you don't touch the Lord's anointed. You don't do that. That was a lesson that had been burned in his heart back in chapter 24 when he had an opportunity to kill Saul. And he was deeply convicted for just cutting a corner off of Saul's robe. If you remember that the literal Hebrew is his conscience or his heart hit him in the face. That's how strongly he felt convicted by just cutting off a corner of Saul's robe. And so for this guy, even with Saul on the doorstep of death, for him to take his sword and kill him, that, that was a sin. You murdered the Lord's anointed. He may have died anyway, but that's between him and God. You hasten the process. You're the one that killed him. And so this is, the, this is what you get, not the reward that this guy was looking for, for sure. I was thinking about that. We've seen lying a couple of times in the past several weeks, once from David and once from this Amalekite. The reason we lie is, be, is because it works. It almost always works in the immediate circumstance. And sometimes it works over time. We always are found out at some point. The truth comes out. You read the newspapers, stuff that happens 10 years or 15 or 20 years ago, it winds up coming out and you wind up having to pay with interest. But the reason we lie oftentimes, David, he lies to protect himself and to protect his family and his troops. But there's definitely some self-interest there. He wants to protect himself and, and we're tempted to do the same thing. When David says to the king, I'm attacking Israelite villages instead of Canaanite villages, he's trying to avoid some pain. He doesn't want to be punished. He doesn't want to be kicked out. He whatever the results would have been, he wants to avoid those, and so he lies. And we're tempted to do the same thing. In a moment, to avoid pain, to avoid consequences, sometimes we say, we say something that's not true to protect ourselves. It's going to come out, and you're going to have to pay with interest when it does. I would encourage you just to tell the truth. The Amalekite is different. 
He's not telling a lie to protect himself. He's telling a lie to promote himself. He's telling a lie to make himself look better than he really is. He's not trying to avoid any negative consequences. He's trying to get a benefit. He could have just told David the story. He could have said, I was running away and Saul was dead. And I picked up his crown to prove to you that he was dead. And I picked up his armband to prove to you he was dead. But I had nothing to do with it. I don't know what happened. I just know he was dead. And I know his sons are dead. He could have left it as that. But rather than just being a messenger, he chose to, 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 to be a participant. And he paid for it with his life. We rare, that's not going to happen to us. You lying is not going to cause you to... No, you're not going to die as a result of that. But if you use... Social media, the temptation to promote yourself is great. If you use social media in order for people to stay updated on your life, you post about yourself, then you're going to be tempted to promote yourself. There was a study and 67% of the people who use social media in that way said that they airbrush the truth. And we know that's not true. It's a lot more than 67%. Those are just the ones who are willing to admit it. It's a higher number. Every time you post, you're tempted to just say the best. You're tempted, instead of to say it was good, to say it was great. That's the temptation that everyone feels when you're putting something out there. And it's not marketing, and it's not PR, and it's not spin, and it's not putting your best foot forward. It's it's lying, is what it is. It's lying. And if, again, if you use social media in order to help other people stay updated about your life, your temptation is to only going to be, is going to be to only put out there the best. It's the best, that it's better than it really was. And in your mind, you're thinking nobody gets hurt. Nobody gets hurt by that. Well, one, it's not true. And, and, and sin always has consequences. So someone is getting hurt. You are, and, and, and the people who are following you are getting hurt because you're creating this artificial standard that then they feel like they have, that's, this is what we do. It just creates this standard. We continue to have to ratchet up the cuteness of our kids or the smartness of our kids or our athletic accomplishments or whatever it is. We have to keep upping the ante because of this idea we just put out there the best or we, we massage reality to make it the best. If you're a parent, here's a book. It's called Right Click. It's good, not great, but it's quick. I read it and that's fair. Yeah, they're, they're not all great, but there's still there's some there's some good things in there. But it's quick. Two hours um, by a lady named Kara Powell. She's a professor at Fuller um, Seminary in California. And it's great on helping your kid. And it's current. It's, it was written a year ago, so it's still pretty current. If you if you need a book to help your teenagers walk through the world and teenagers, don't worry, it doesn't say don't use social media that she tells you how to help your kids walk through it. And this is one of the things she talks about is this idea of being honest and what you're posting, and as a family, holding one another accountable, where your kids may hold you accountable if you're saying things about your family vacation that are really probably not accurate. And then maybe you can hold them accountable as well. So the truth is that which conforms to reality. So if you're going to say something, it needs to conform to reality. We don't have time to talk about this, but as a side note, just because something conforms to reality doesn't mean, doesn't mean it needs to be said. There are true things. Don't say something unless it's true. But just because it's true doesn't mean you need to say it. It, That's not the only criteria for saying something. Is it loving is one. And two is do you actually have the relationship to convey that information? Sometimes that's not the case. For some of us, 
once we find out something's true, we think that's a free pass and we start burning people's house down. That's, that's not the thing. If you're not, if it's not said in love and if you don't have the relationship for someone to actually be able to hear what you're saying, then you probably don't need to say it, even though it is something that's true. All right, last bit. Saul dies. David hears about Saul's death. David's reaction. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. So a lament is a poem that would be sung or chanted during morning, a morning ritual. We're not going to act that out. I'm just going to read it. And he ordered the people of Judah to be taught this lament of the bow. It's written in the book of Jasher, which we don't have anymore. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. You hear that. So Saul is dead. We don't want, if the Philistines hear about it, if it's proclaimed in their cities, they're going to rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, that's where Saul died. May you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terrace fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned you with garments, with ornaments of old, of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. You are very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. I'll give you one thing on this, but before I do, just reiterate, David was not gay. Him saying Jonathan's love was greater than the love of women. There was nothing sexual about that. This is not great, but in the time marriage was not uh don't think of it as a friendship partnership like your wife was not your best friend she was not somebody that you would confide in not someone you would have deep conversations with she was someone who had babies and someone who kind of took care of the house that was the relationship was much more functional than anything else i'm not saying that nobody loved their wife but in general the what we think of when we think of marriage was very different than what Marriage actually was during this time. It would make much more sense for Jonathan, David's best friend, to fill that role. For him to be the one David would go to if he was needed some comfort or needed some direction or needed some encouragement. That would come from your best friend. That wouldn't necessarily come from your spouse. And so that's what David is saying there. What I want you to see uh, with this lament is I, I believe it's true. I don't believe it's a put on sometimes. Funerals, people say things that are not necessarily true, kind of in honor of the person who's dead. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think David is being honest. And what I want you to see is the two different ways of seeing Saul. As, as we've read through First Samuel, if I said, tell me something good about Saul, most of you would probably say there's nothing. There, I don't know. We, there's been hardly any times where we've said, hey, Saul actually did this right. He, in the Bible, he's portrayed as a, a really a, a bad king. And as a bad man, not just a bad king. He's really, it's not about his kingship at all. It's about his heart. He's portrayed as a bad man. But what you see here in this lament is he was actually a really good king. The things that David points out about Saul are the things that we would say, hey, he, was, he must have been a really good ruler. The, the Israelites wanted a king who would lead them in battle. And look what it says about him. He's brave. He's, he's courageous. He's strong. He's swift. He was mighty. Those are the types of that he only lost once and it was the last one. 
He never lost another battle. He was a strong warrior. He was loved. Again, when we read it, he, he comes across as a, a, a jerk, an egocentric, selfish jerk. But he was well-loved, according to David. He was admired, according to David. He led the people in a time of prosperity. They had gold ornaments of gold and these nice clothes. He was a great king militarily and economically and even in terms of popular support. Remember, there were people who were informing on David to Saul. There were tons of people. The whole country picked Saul over David for a number of years. He was a really, really maybe good, if not great, king. And David is able to acknowledge that. There's no bitterness in his heart. If you can imagine that, somebody wearing you out for 10 years, hunting you down like a dog, making your life miserable. And when they die, you're able to say, these are the things they did well. These are the areas where they were successful. And David's able to name those things about Saul. Now, he, I don't think he cries for Saul. He says, I grieve for you, Jonathan. He doesn't say, I grieve for you, Saul. I don't think his heart's broken that Saul's dead. I think he's glad. But he's not bitter. And he's not resentful. What I want us to see as we close, we'll look at this more next week, is the two different ways of seeing somebody. The way you can look at Saul's resume as a king, and then you can see what God says about him. First Samuel 16, 7 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. It's when Samuel is looking for Saul's replacement, and he winds up in Jesse's uh, house. And he's looking at Jesse's sons, and the first one, Eliab, looks just like a king. And he says, you've got to be it, and... God speaks to Samuel and says, no, he's not. Y'all people, y'all look at the external appearance. I'm looking at the heart. And you see here the two different ways of looking when you think about Saul. There's a guy named David Brooks. He wrote a book called The Road to Character. And at the very beginning of it, he talks about, are you working towards your resume or are you working towards your eulogy? He said in, in a previous time, People cultivated characteristics in their heart that would have been celebrated at their death. Particularly characteristics like humility. That's one that he emphasizes. Where we live now, he says, we cultivate traits that really have more to do with helping us get a job. That have more to do with helping us get ahead than anything else. You see here, there's two different ways of looking at Saul. By his resume, he was a really good king. He did the things you want kings to do. But you see what God says about him on the right-hand side of that screen. First Chronicles 10 is retelling the story of Saul's death. And the chronicler puts this footnote at the end just to make sure. Hey, I want you to know why this happened. Saul was unfaithful to the Lord, so God killed him. That's what he says. Because Saul was unfaithful to the Lord, God killed him. That's why he died, because he was unfaithful. It's a very different judgment. Two of the most famous kings, or excuse me, not the most famous, two of the most successful kings in Israel's history you've never even heard of. One was named Omri. You don't know him. He's the one who founded Samaria, which was the capital of Israel. He's one of the only Israelites whose name is found in foreign sources. He was internationally known. One of the very few Israelites to be known internationally. His name was still known 150 years after his death. He gets seven verses in the Bible because he was wicked. A guy named Jeroboam II, second only to Solomon in terms of the economic prosperity that uh, during his reign. He expanded the borders of Israel in some very significant ways. He gets six verses for 41 years of ruling because he was wicked. 
If we were listing the kings based on their effectiveness, Omri and Jeroboam II are, are up near the top, and so is Saul. But if we're listing them the way God does, according to their faithfulness, based on their character, based on their trust of him, those guys are all the way at the bottom. He doesn't judge the way we judge. For many of us, there's a temptation to work towards our resume. Don't hear me say work towards your eulogy so people say good things about you. That's just a, that's just a back door to your pride. But this idea of saying, are you cultivating characteristics in yourself that, that, that are eternal, that outlive you, that have value in the kingdom, even if those things don't help you succeed? They don't help you get a promotion. They don't help you get on the cover of a magazine. They don't get you noticed. Are you willing to cultivate those? Anyway, let's pray. This is what I want you thinking about as Bo comes back. Just that one question. It's a great prayer to work into your regular prayer life. Holy Spirit, search me and know me. And then specifically, show me my anxious thoughts. I want to know the places where I'm not trusting you. Where I'm anxious, that's where I'm not trusting you. Is there, are there any offensive ways in me? Any places where, God, I'm doing things that are dishonoring to you or that are offending you? I want you to think about that in this very specific application. Resume versus eulogy. External versus internal. None of you are failing all the way across the board. None of you are. But none of us are 10 out of 10s either. So let's just ask the Lord in the next three minutes. Holy Spirit, search my heart. Show me where I'm being tempted. To pad my resume. Show me where I'm tempted to chase after the things that the world values. Where the deceitfulness of wealth, where the desire kingdom in me. Show me the places where I'm sacrificing like Esau. I'm, I'm trading my birthright in the kingdom for a bowl of soup. Show me where that's happening. Bring conviction. There's going to be places where God affirms you, where he says you're doing great. You're valuing the right things here. And there may be one, two areas where God would convict and say you're chasing the wrong thing in this area. And if you sense conviction, just repent. God, I confess that in that area I'm tempted. I, I want a bigger house or I want a nicer car. There's this, there's a, a, a love of money in my heart. And I know it's the root of all kinds of evil. And because I want these things, I'm tempted. I'm tempted to promote myself maybe in some ways that are not true. I'm tempted to try to win at work in ways that aren't oriented around the kingdom. I'll take credit for somebody else's success. I won't be completely honest in the sales meeting because I want to make sure it closes. I'll stay too late even if I have to sacrifice my family so my boss notices and gives me a promotion or a bonus. It may have something to do with your kids where 
your desire to see them succeed? Are you pushing them to succeed in things that matter for eternity? You're only in things that matter before they graduate. It's a huge temptation. Just ask him, God, show me. Show me my heart. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? I pray that you would encourage and affirm in all of the areas where we're making the right choices, where we're cultivating kingdom character. And God, the, 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 the places where we're giving in to temptation, where we're chasing after things that burn, would you bring conviction and grace? In Jesus' name.